Welcome to episode 21 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, it's Todd Houston again. I just wanted to invite you to become a content creator for the 3C Digital Media Network. We want to really ramp up what we have to offer in 2021, this new year that we find ourselves in. So please reach out to us if you have ideas for webinars, courses, or even maybe a new podcast that you'd like to develop. Reach out to me at Todd at 3CDigitalMediaNetwork.com and I'll be in touch. Thanks. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Melissa Hall. Melissa received her Doctor of Audiology degree from the University of Florida in May 2010 and her Master of Arts degree in Communication Sciences and Disorders from the University of Central Florida in August of 2006. Dr. Hall is duly certified and licensed as an audiologist and a speech-language pathologist. Dr. Hall works as a team member on the UF University of Florida Health Cochlear Implant Program and provides services such as cochlear implant evaluation, programming, and rehabilitation while working closely with otolaryngology to provide a team approach to patient care. Dr. Hall is a board member of the American Cochlear Implant Alliance. It's my pleasure to speak with Melissa. So, Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Can you uh, give us a little bit more about your background? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so, I actually became um, a speech-language pathologist first, um, and then I ended up going on to get my doctor of audiology later. Um, while I was doing the program for the, the speech-language pathology degree, I kept um, signing up for courses in the graduate degree program for oral habilitation. Um, and I was the only student in my cohort that would sign up for those courses. So naturally that one student wasn't enough to support having an entire course. So I kept signing up for everything that they offered and then kept not getting the cat, the class that I wanted. Mm -hmm. I went on into my, um, my externships and in my full-time externship, I did um, an externship with students in a school for the deaf. And one of, one of the schools that I went to, um, it was total communication and the other school that I went to was oral. Um, and I found it to be really fascinating, the differences in the communication um, abilities that each of the students had. Um, you know, I would look through audiograms and I would see, well, they have the same hearing loss. They were identified around the same time. Um, you know, they have different communication modalities, but why is one child able to do certain things and another child really in incapable of doing that? Um, so when I finished my SLP degree, I ended up working in the school system. And at the same time, I applied and was accepted into the audiology degree program 
mostly to answer some of those questions that I had and then the interest in therapy that I had, trying to see how I could better help those patients that I was going to be working with. Um, so I ended up going to the AED program um, and really got a lot of answers to those questions the <laughs> degree program. Um, and really, uh, my husband is also, he's a cochlear implant recipient. He's um, bilaterally implanted. And I met him through taking a sign language course. And I kept thinking, you know, he's so functional. He's able to function so well in his work environment and his school environment. And what makes it so different for all these other patients? So kind of all of that led me to the audiology degree. And I was, as I was going through that degree, I really saw the possibility of helping people more by being able to provide therapy at the same time as programming their devices. Um, so after that, I went to UNC Chapel Hill for my externship for audiology. Um, and I like to refer to UNC Chapel Hill pediatric program as <laughs> the Disney world of cochlear implants and pediatrics. Um, it's just, it's such a wonderful place to be, to learn information for all the questions that you might have, um, as a professional and really develop skills. And at that time I was able to work with some really great, um, therapists and really great audiologists. And they let me do therapy and then let me later program patients, the exact same patient. So I got to see real therapy change. And then I got to see what programming changes would do for somebody. Um, so I really got to have like a full circle experience there um, and really cemented that I was in the right place and that I was doing, um, you know, what I felt like I was led to do. Um, <clears throat> It's funny, at that time, I was trying to decide, do I want to go more therapy? Do I want to go more audiology? You know, is there a job like that? And in reality, no, there isn't one. Um, most jobs, when they're posted, they're posted as an audiology line or a speech line. Um, and you really have to make one. So I spent a lot of time over the last couple of years trying to find that area where I could do both and really feel satisfied that I was providing the best care for patients with the knowledge and expertise that I had. Um, so I'm the director of the cochlear implant program at UF Health now, um, and I do see patients mostly in an audiology capacity, and then I also support the SLP team. Um, I will do a lot of evaluations and kind of staff patients and then get them to the therapists um, for their full-time therapy. So it's been an interesting journey to get to this point. Um, but I do feel like having the SLP background um, made me a better audiologist for the perspective that I wanted to have. Um, and the audiologists are wonderful and they get a lot of great training um, but one of the things that SLPs get that I think audiologists could get more of is uh, behavior training and therapy and how to get a child to do a certain behavior for you and what positive reinforcement means, what negative reinforcement means. And some of those skills could be really helpful in training for condition play um, and different aspects of an audiologist's everyday life. So, you know, some of that crossover, even though the fields are so different now, some of that crossover has been very helpful for me. Yeah, that's a a great introduction of yourself and your and your background and how you ended up both in, in sort of in both professional worlds with speech language pathology and audiology. You mentioned taking a step back during your speech path training. You were requesting those courses, and you were the basically the only student. What 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 led you into hearing loss? So the first course that I took in audiology was the fundamentals um, in the undergraduate degree program, and I just was so fascinated by 
um, the difficulties that people would have with hearing loss from the the um, cases that the professor would present. Um, and I really, that population of patients is who I wanted to work with. And I knew it from that class. Um, you know, I had taken courses in articulation and fluency and feeding and swallowing. And really what I kept coming back to was people with hearing loss and what could I do in their lives to help them. Um, and so that course really, I think, started what I consider to be a love affair with people with hearing loss, basically just that was the area that I wanted to focus on. And I kept trying to find avenues um, to do that, to figure that out, whether it be placements or courses or, you know, externships later on. Um, that was really the population I really liked. You and I are very similar in that way because I went to grad school in speech language pathology because I knew I wanted to work with kids with hearing loss. That's what really focused me. And unfortunately, at the time, there wasn't a lot of extra things I could do uh, to get additional experience. Mm -hmm. um, and the course, you know, the, the intro to audiology course I took was was great. Uh, the oral habilitation course I took at the time was more of a survey course. Here's how to troubleshoot a hearing aid, and here's right. here's right. some different methodologies you might see, but otherwise, that's about it. You know, that was about the scope of the course, and uh, and so I was like. I, you know, I've just, and this came sort of at the end of the master's degree. And, um, mm -hmm. and so I'm like, well, I've been here this whole time waiting to get this course. And this course really isn't preparing me to go out and now mm -hmm. work with a population I really want to work with. And so it was a bit of a letdown, even though I think I had a overall, mm -hmm. a very good training as an SLP at that point in time, uh, I felt disappointed that that one area where I really wanted to focus just didn't really prepare me. And much of uh, what I have done as a speech language pathologist uh, and how my, in terms of my professional preparation has come after I graduated with my master's um, doing, mm -hmm. you know, auditory verbal and then, you know, getting training in that area and then going back and getting a PhD and focusing more on, on those kinds of things. But it, and unfortunately, it had to come afterwards. And uh, but you know, you as we were talking about earlier before we started, you have sort of uh, reconstructed sort of what training used to look like, where it was you know less of a challenge to become duly certified. And and you've you've you stuck it out and got two different degrees. <laughs> you know, back in the old days, you, mm -hmm. you kind of you know go an extra semester. You know, because that's you know you or uh, another year maybe, and then you have both. Uh, of course, the scope of practice in both areas, right. uh, both professions is so much bigger now. It's, you, know, you need to do both degrees. But uh, I wish more people could do what you've done, or we had another way of mm. combining the two. Because I do think if, you, if you're a good pediatric audiologist and uh, you need to understand how speech development mm -hmm. works, how speech science works, speech acoustics, and then, uh, and then what the intervention should look like and how to judge whether inter the intervention is being effective mm -hmm. uh, right. and the quality, right? And, and if you are a speech language pathologist, you need to understand the audiology side of things. And you need to know when you're looking at this information, what it means. Uh, when you're working with an, uh, an audiologist, be able to talk to them about mapping, be able to talk to them if there's, you know, working kids with cochlear implants, of course, and 
and and understand speech acoustics and all that stuff too. And so it it does require that sort of common knowledge base from both perspectives to be really, really effective. And I wish there was a way today where we could more easily provide that kind of training uh, for, for students. So maybe down the road, something will happen and, and that will you know, be possible. And so I, I wanted to um, talk to you about what you're seeing today in terms of the cochlear implant program at UF. What exactly is UF Health? I think I have an idea, but. Yeah, UF Health is, um, it's a partnership with the University of Florida um, and UF Health and UF work together to provide um, education for students in various medical and um, rehabilitation fields. Um, And then also we have a mission for research and for advocacy um, and for awareness. So it's really a nice um, marriage of two different entities with similar goals. Um, The great thing about um, being in a large hospital and a large facility is we can try some new ideas and some new things like um, teletherapy, things like that, that other centers may not have the overhead to try to manage and try to figure out from a um, reimbursement standpoint. Um, The other nice thing is that we constantly have an influx of new students that are ready to learn new things. Um, And I've taught a number of courses over the years in the AUD graduate program. And I was pleasantly surprised at UF to see, you know, my undergraduate and my graduate degree program at UCF have changed drastically. Um, You know, I was the only person that kept asking for those classes in my cohort. And now it's a full-fledged track in the program for hearing. Um, And so I think that that things that I would have benefited from at the time are now in place. And so I'm hoping more people are getting to be able to take more advantage of it. Um, But at UF, I've been able to see undergraduate um, speech language pathology students and graduate SLP students wanting to take audiology courses. And they know that that's the area that they want to be in. And they've actually been placed in those courses as, you know, extra Um, And so we've been able to see some more of that overlap, which I still think there's plenty of room to grow in that area, Um, especially on the audiology side, too. I think that audiologists, and this is just a gross overgeneralization, but I can say it because I am one. (laughs) We like puzzle pieces to fit. We like um, to solve the problem. We like to have a point A to point Z and to be clear. And quite often, children with hearing loss it isn't a point A to point B, it's a convoluted journey and trying to get everyone all on the same page can be difficult. Um, and so I think with audiology, having that kind of mindset of problem solving is really helpful, but thinking outside the box is really helpful too. And I think that's actually a strength of an SLP, you know, being flexible in a therapy session, getting down on the floor and playing with a child and, and meeting them at their level is something that I think is taught or, or maybe it's an eight and people, an eight and people that um, work with children. But I do think it's different in the way that we approach patients. Um, and I think sometimes if we had a different mindset as audiologists, we would meet people where they are differently um, and be more successful. And I think we could learn more from SLPs and vice versa. Um, but that is something that I, I completely think is an, an, is an area of need for education. And a lot of my education, much like you, happened after the fact. So degrees, 
But really, you know, going to the Carolina Summer Institute while I was there as an extern and doing the treatment program and, you know, working together with that team of professionals and seeing how they communicate with each other on a daily basis about all of the patients was the piece that I didn't have. You know, I had my graduate degree in speech. I had my graduate degree in audiology. And then I really didn't understand how it all fit together until I did that institute training. Um, and that, you know, that was like, I, I suppose everybody has that, that like aha moment. This is where I'm supposed to be. This mm-hmm. is, this is what it's all for. And, and this is how I'm going to get all of my patients where they need to go. Um, and that was, that was when I had it as a fourth year audiology student, um, you know, with Holly Teagle and <laughs> Lillian Henderson and all of those wonderful people at UNC. And I know a, a lot of people have left there, but it's just such a, a a great model that the rest of us could probably use more of, of how to collaborate, how to, you know, kind of cross train each other and, and be able to be conversant in each of those different, you know, areas of education. Um, that's just something that's a huge passion of mine. So I, I love talking to you about it. <laughs> I would do agree with you, I should say about UNC Chapel Hill. And, and, and I love the folks there and, and have a, a really strong relationship with those, those folks there. Um, both personally and professionally, but, you know, I think this whole idea now is that interprofessional training and, and you're describing sort of what can be possible when it does work, when it's in place, when people are community, the professionals on the same team are communicating and they understand what each other needs and then how to help the patient. And, and I think they are, are definitely one of the best models that I have mm-hmm. ever seen in terms of pediatric cochlear implantation and having a strong team. So um, mm-hmm. I haven't been able to visit your program, but I'm, I'm sure the, it's, it's quite the same. But, you know, they have always been one of the models I've looked <laughs> to as, as an example of that. And I think even, even past that, you know, you have the, the SLP training, you have the audiology training. Mm-hmm. And then you have amazing, wonderful physicians and psychologists. And if you can learn from them as a professional and keep developing, you're going to be better at what you do. Um, you know, fortunately, I've worked with really good people at every center I've worked at. I've worked at three big centers for cochlear implants um, in the Southeast. And every center, it's just mutual respect. And that mutual respect, that just means that we can work better together. And that is a win for our patients mm-hmm. and our families. You know, we have lots of physicians that we work with here at UF Health. Unfortunately, they respect what the SLP says just as much as what the audiologist says. And I don't know that it's always that way everywhere. Um, and so I think that we, when we have that situation, we get really lucky. <laughs> that means mm-hmm. Yeah, lucky. I, yes, I can tell you, it, it is not yeah. that way everywhere, as, as you can know. Um, and I agree. It's, I think when, when everyone values, truly values the input and the perspective of, of each other on that team. Uh, it's just going to make everyone stronger. It's going to make the team stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like what you're saying in terms of being open to learning uh, about another discipline and, and from another uh, person on the team who has, you know, a whole other area of training and how, you know, you guys can integrate what you're trying to do mm-hmm. with, you know, from your perspective, from their perspective, 
And uh, I think, again, it's just, I'm just, I'm sort of passionate about that too. When you're able to do that well, it just, it's, it's just like a f- uh, finely tuned machine that really mm-hmm. works quite well. It doesn't mean you don't have hiccups every now and again. You right. have to get a tune up every now and again <laughs> uh, and address issues that come up. But at the end of the day, you have each other's backs, you trust each other's judgment, you know, everyone's there for the same purpose and for the mm-hmm. same reason. And it just makes everything go a lot smoother. Makes you so much more confident as a provider. You know, we had a, I just came from a meeting this morning with our cochlear implant team. And it was great because we brought up some issues with um, scheduling or, you know, expediting certain patients or, you know, whatever the case may be. And there wasn't a time that, that someone didn't come up with a solution or come up with a different workflow or something like that. And it may seem small, but that change means better access to healthcare. And I think that's something that in the, in the field of hearing loss, whether we're providing rehab or technology or, or surgery or whatever we're doing, that is an area that we don't have the best access. We don't get people that do need the help like we should. You know, the market concentration mm-hmm. for cochlear implants still remains poor, even though the mm-hmm. this may be going up. So part of that is how do we make our flow better at our own facilities? And that's something that we do here at UF Health all the time. But how do we make that better so that patients who need services actually get to the service? Um, And I think that's another area that I see us continuing to grow as a field um, from a rehab perspective and from audiology and surgery. And it's something that we can't ever really be lax on because everything keeps changing, whether it be laws or um, you know, the, the cultural awareness of it or education, there's so many ways that we can improve so that people get where they need to go. I agree. And, uh, here in Ohio, we kind of wrestle with that transition from early intervention to, well, within early intervention, getting access to those children. And, and on average, you know, kids get about one hour a month of early intervention and and once, yeah, that's that's hard. a lot, isn't it? <laughs> uh, that's a hard it's number. Crazy. <laughs> They're going to do so well, uh, and and so it's it is a struggle uh, here. I know you know North Carolina, as we talk about them, uh, have beginnings in a very different system, and and maybe a little bit better model of how to get families connected earlier, and then services can flow here. It's uh, a situation where, you know, kids make it to early intervention, but they don't get additional services. They're not referring out of early intervention and connecting families to additional services in the community, which is frustrating because then by the time they hear about cochlear implants or other uh, communication methodology or getting connected to an AV therapist or whatever the case may be, it's always a little bit later than it could have been. And so even today, mm-hmm. when we fought so hard to get newborn hearing screening and try to get issues going from screening to diagnosis to intervention worked out, we still are struggling because of issues and professional yeah, okay. boundaries. And mm-hmm. this agency is fear, you know, they fear having to pay for additional services if they refer to another professional, you know, or another uh, provider. And it's just, it's just exhausting, but we have to keep fighting, <laughs> keep fighting these, these fights to get families connected where they need to be 
as early as possible so that children can have the very best outcomes. And I'm sure you guys have done this in your area, especially knowing your reputation. Um, But there are, you know, there's so many ways that I think providers think that they can't get involved in certain things, or they think they can be part of certain conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, you know, this is something that's just coming from personal experiences that I've had with early intervention in our state. I think sometimes we get kind of frustrated with things and then we don't extend an olive branch or we don't reach out or we don't ask for who should we talk to about how to make this better. We just kind of stay frustrated. And I think that's an area that really all of us could be doing better. You know, I know I've reached out, but if only one person reaches out, we don't have the same amount of people and we don't affect mm-hmm. the same amount of change. And, you know, once you get a physician backing that, or you get um, an SLP who's very vocal in the community backing that, and then you get parents backing that, then you get a movement. You know, if we have people kind of reaching out here and there, trying to extend all a branch and improve referral sources and things like that, it's just not going to be as effective as if we're all on the same page. And I think that's something that we just need to always keep working towards and, and trying to be empathetic of other people, but also you know, this is the research and this is what it shows um, in terms of early intervention and outcomes. And, you know, what do you hope for your child to be at age 10, at age 20? What do you think they're going to be doing in college? And if we're not having those conversations openly with early intervention, we can't really expect it to change. And I know you have, I'm sure, done all of that outreach (laughs) just because I've, you know, followed you for a bit from my time at the University of South Carolina. Um, and I think people like that, that go out and change and actually reach out, that's going to be the change. And the more we can get people to do it, the better. Oh, I I agree a hundred percent. And I think, um, continuing to have that outreach and that contact and continuing to be the, you know, that drip, drip, drip of the water that never goes away, (laughs) that leak that now can never be fixed. Um, yeah. Because you know it, that that's just what it takes, and 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 then I think the other thing is is really involving the parents. I think if parents can take owner more and more ownership, I mean, professionals certainly being at the table and and, and advocating, but when parents are in there making calls and testifying before state, you know, legislature committees and things like that, and you know, it's hard to say no to the parents. You know, when they're saying, look. We need these services. We need, you know, we want these things to happen. And so some of that sort of grassroots organization has to take place uh, is is really critical as well. And, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, unfortunately, it's it's still a lot of work that needs to be done, you know, and and we'll just have to continue to keep up the good fight. And hopefully uh, we'll continue to see uh, uh, positive things that will eventually come out of it. So, um, Going back to the team for a moment there, um, talk to me about what, or maybe maybe on the same sort of uh, uh, chain of thought here uh, in terms of what's going on in the field, how can teams better serve families? What do you think are some of the key issues that are out there today? Yeah, I think you touched on one already with early intervention. Um, And I think not knowing what they're counseled on when they're um, initially connected with early intervention services is an issue. And then I also think kind of expediting all of our services, making time in our schedule to expedite patients who 
have reason to be expedited. So if they're identified, you know, later on and they have a significant hearing loss and they need to get hearing aids, you know, we still, we run into insurance issues that really is an impediment to a lot of patients getting to a device that they need. Um, So we're fortunate we have um, early steps in the state of Florida where if a patient, a child's insurance doesn't cover hearing aids that we can apply for them through early steps before the age of three. Um, But you know, not all kids are identified before the age of three. Um, We're still struggling with some of those late identified children due to loss follow-up or whatever the reason. And I think the insurance issue for us is a huge issue. And so one of the things that we've we've kind of started to do here at um, UF Health is we have, because we have that partnership with UF, we have a, a a great amount of undergraduate students that are trying to figure out how they can help their community. And so what they do for our team is they actually raise money every year to buy devices for patients that are going through trial for cochlear implant candidacy so that we don't have to wait for insurance. Um, And we can kind of get to the next step in a timely manner without having to wait so long for insurance authorizations. Um, A tricky part too, I think that a team could do better is Um, you know, one of the things that I like that we do is we meet once a month as a team, you know, some of those things we kind of handle through emails or through things like that to try to expedite. Um, but I think more teams kind of going through and saying, what is it that we could do for this patient that would get them to what they need faster? How could we counsel them differently? Do we need to see them back to make sure that they really understand, um, all of those things from a scheduling standpoint are difficult and they take a lot of time. And if we don't have good people on our team figuring out how to schedule that and what's a priority and we don't outline that for them, then the patient loses, you know? So I think keeping better handle on when a patient needs to be expedited, what the situation might be, and really kind of trying to circumvent insurance issues is probably one of our biggest problems um, aside from the early intervention issue. So that would, for me, make my life better if insurance wasn't quite so such an impediment. <laughs> um, I do think the education of providers in general in the community is something that um, is, I don't want to say lacking, but lacking is probably the right term. You know, pediatricians, general practitioners, the training that they get in medical school is not really sufficient to helping them know that cochlear implants are the best treatment option for significant hearing loss. And so getting that information to general practitioners or pediatricians, um, that is something that I think, you know, the ACIA is working on, trying to do presentations. Um, They're trying to train people to be more equipped to make the referral when they may not even know that that's an option. Um, And so I know there's there's been talks at more of the GP conferences and things like that, but that's something that I think from a community standpoint, the centers in a community could be doing to really do more outreach and teach people, okay, what does a candidate look like? And it's not just what is on an audiogram. You know, I think that, that functional ability of a patient or, or a child, you know, being able to communicate or not communicate, those are really overlooked in well visits sometimes. Um, and we kind of do screeners and we think we're doing the right thing and we're missing people. I think situations that can improve. So I think the general, the general practitioner awareness could be improved greatly. Well, I agree a hundred percent. And and I, where I am now at Akron Children's Hospital, I'm there two days a week with their cochlear implant team, and 
we're, I'm, you know, doing more of the AV stuff and with my grad students, but we still have referrals that come in um, sometimes from rural areas or, you know, it just, it's just weird that, you know, these kids are three, four years old, you know, showing up with minimal, you know, early intervention or no identification of hearing loss uh, prior to getting referred, you know, later. And, and we're still hearing these weird, you know, uh, testimonies from parents about, you know, well, I went to my family, you know, practitioner, because maybe in the rural area, it was the, you know, just the general practitioner who served everyone in the family. And he thought he was fine. You know, he didn't, didn't say, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't, you know, he thought it was something else. It wasn't hearing loss. And uh, he assured me it wasn't hearing loss and I didn't need to do anything more. And, but, you know, kids now, you know, three years old, <laughs> not talking and, you know, and so it's like, here we are right. 2021 and we're still having issues where, yeah, those kinds of things are still happening. Same conversation, where, yeah. You know, we still hear of clapping the hands and ringing, you know, shaking the car keys and doing all this stuff and saying, oh, he's hearing fine. Or boys talk later than girls. Don't worry about it. Or you, you, you're you, a first-time mom. You're, you're being a little too right. over-anxious, you know, because <laughs> you're a first-time that. mom and kind of, you know, dismissing concerns. And, and so I have to say it's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still a problem that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And it's still not where it should be. Yeah. Agree. Agree. Right. Right. And I, I wholeheartedly think, you know, with all of the medical pres- uh, personnel and, and, and physicians, especially, and even nursing, you know, giving more mm-hmm. information about cochlear implants and who's the candidate. And then going back to how we started this conversation about how we train more uh, audiologists and SLPs, I think we need to get more experience at the pre-service level with kids with hearing loss beyond just mm-hmm. you know the survey course or making it optional. And I think... I think back when I was getting my master's and how ASHA had divided the the number of clock hours up into mm-hmm. actual areas. And so we had to get, I think, 20 hours of pediatric oral habilitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it was defined. You had to get those hours. And now it's more child speech, child language. Right, right. And, you know, and a child and with so, hearing loss in that exposure. Yeah. Right, right. And so... You know, kids, you know, being in a training program today, I'm like, you know, these kids can go through their graduate program and never see or work with a child with hearing loss mm-hmm. because those hours are gotten with other populations. Right. And you hope at some point that they had training and communication modality, you know, unless unless they've had a course with a preceptor that understands the different communication modalities, they may not have. Right. Um may think they understand what sign language really means or what cued speech really means or oral or, you know, auditory verbal. But unless you go through that and you actually educate someone on that, they don't understand how hearing is even involved in those communication modalities. So then when a parent's choosing and they're incapable of counseling about them, Mm -hmm. not super surprising that the outcomes aren't what everyone is hoping for, (laughs) you know, so. From a graduate level standpoint, we could do better for sure. <laughs> we could do a lot better. I was, and this is just kind of fits it, but I got an email uh, from a, a student, a grad student right now who's taking my class. She's about to graduate, you know, in May. 
And so I teach a course uh, for students. I have courses for students who specialize in the auditory uh, verbal area. But uh, for other students who don't take those courses, uh, I teach a course called uh, Audiology for the SLP. Mm-hmm. And I do approach it sort of like that oral habilitation stuff and what, you know, how to work with the child with hearing loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a speech language pathologist, what do you need to know? How do you work with an adult with hearing loss? You know, what do you need to know? But she said, you know, this was the first time uh, she watched a lecture and she watched electron speech acoustics and speech science and how it all fit together with the audiogram and, you know, vowels and formants and all this stuff. And she said, it's the first time that I've realized what how speech uh, speech science stuff that I learned way back when actually applied to anything in the profession. And it was the first time I realized what speech language pathologists could actually do with kids with hearing loss. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, ah, comes at the end of her <laughs> her training with one lecture, you know, she's being exposed to something. And it's like, we got to do a better job because, you know, if she had gotten that information a lot earlier mm-hmm. on in a different way, she could have been maybe a very powerful, right. you know, clinician who really wants to do this. But, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, this is the first time I've made those connections of what I would do, you know. Yeah, I certainly wish as a student those connections would have been earlier, you know. And then what what would that path look like for another SLP now? If, if we did do that earlier, they could be even that much more effective when they start seeing patients when they graduate. Um, yeah, it's huge, especially because we don't want to have trial and error on babies. We want to have successful outcomes. <laughs> yeah, and that connection earlier is better. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, where do you, where do you guys uh, hope to go with the team there in terms of um, yeah uh, the next you know, three to five years? What would you like to see happen? Oh, I would love to see us expand our rehabilitation services. I would really love to see us see more adults for therapy. Um, you know, I think that that's one of the areas in in speech and cochlear implants that it's just really underserved that population from a rehabilitation standpoint. And there's so much that we could do to help people process the sound from their implant better. You know, we send them home. Some people live really far from our center and they can't come. And we try to do things online or, or, you know, telehealth. But I don't think that providers really see the importance like they do in kids. You know, the kids, it's readily apparent that they have a communication difficulty and that if we don't do something to help them, you know, they're really lost and they have to fend for themselves. And a child shouldn't have to do that but we really should be applying a similar mindset to adults in that they've never heard with electrical hearing either with a cochlear implant and their brain needs to figure out how to process it also. And we could really help them do that and get them at a more functional level faster and not struggling um, for as long and their family members not struggling as long. And I think the whole, the whole aspect of how hearing loss impacts families that's something that, you know, there's more psychologists on teams now, but I would love to have more dedicated personnel to help in that area. Um, we, ha- we don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about hearing loss mm-hmm. really impacts an entire family unit. Um, and how, you know, we do a little bit of marriage counseling sometimes for really in our scope <laughs> of practice. And, you know, when should we be referring out? And I think we should probably be referring most of our patients, if not all of them, for some level of support or at least a screening to see if we could provide support. 
So I think those areas for our team specifically, I would love to see um, adult rehab. I would love to see um, mental health support as they go through this process, whether they be uh, a pediatric patient or an adult. Um, and then I think we keep growing from an audiology perspective. So I don't have any doubt that we'll have plenty of providers to see people. We keep growing from a from a surgical perspective, um, but really the rehab, I would love to see us expand more into telepractice and for reimbursement to really cover it more readily and not have to fight so hard for certain things. Um, and just, you know, the benefits have been shown in research. So it's not that the work hasn't been done. It has been done. And, and now we just need to lobby and get people to pay. <laughs> um, and I think that's gonna be an uh, ever persistent issue in this field. Well, I, th- I think you've just summed up the next three three to five years of work that we need to tackle a little bit of work just a little bit of work yeah yeah Yeah. so we have our goals set for you know at least through what 2025 exactly yeah yeah well it's been just a delight talking with you today and really appreciate you being on the podcast and best of luck with you and with everything you're doing there with your team thank you so much for having me it was great to talk to you I really admire Melissa's drive. I mean, after all, she got two degrees, speech-language pathology and audiology, and I think she's combined that knowledge base to just be an incredible professional who's serving her patients well and directing a very, very widely respected cochlear implant team. So... Best of luck to her and everything that she's doing. And again, just admire everything that she's accomplished. And with that, I can admire you if you leave us a five-star review. That helps us to attract new listeners and to grow the program. We want to get this podcast to reach more people. And we do that by having good reviews And by you, uh, dear listener, sharing the podcast and sharing episodes with people you think should hear this information. And with that, until next time, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.